Forecasting sales is big business. If I'm able to better forecast how many of a product or service I'm going to sell, I'm better able to stock my inventory, I'm better able to staff my offices or facilities, and I'm certainly better able to manage my expenses and stay profitable if I know how much I'm going to sell. And as it turns out, the art and science of projecting sales is big business. J.P. Clark is our guest this week on AI and Industry. J.P. was an associate professor at MIT, is now a full professor at Georgia Tech, and he's co-founder and chief scientist at Pre, the company is spelled P-R-I-X, which is a company focusing on sales forecasting in the hotel space. He talks about how new data, such as weather information and nuances as to up-to-the-minute sales, can update projection models for the sales of, let's say, hotel rooms in his particular example, better calibrate how much of a certain kind of room at what kind of certain price would we be able to sell today versus tomorrow versus the next day based on real-time data coming in. In addition to that, JP talks about where the domain of sales forecasting and price prediction will come in into the future, how maybe other retail markets will be able to better calibrate prices in real time. And he paints an interesting picture about how even the future of grocery might involve pricing products differently depending on when they're going to go bad and just how much that could mean in terms of additional efficiencies into that world of grocery, which is already so tremendously low margin. Although a lot of the examples are knuckled down in the world of hotels, the principles here certainly apply elsewhere. And I think it's an an eye-opening interview in terms of knowing where projections and prediction is going and forecasting is going in the domain of sales. So without further ado, this is JP with Pre here on AI and Industry. So JP, I figure we'll start with what's presently possible in the domain of pricing and forecasting. This is the world that you function in right now in hotels in the future and other things. You know, I've been on a million hotel sites. How do folks figure out what is being priced how, kind of what's the current state of affairs, and how are you guys kind of going about it? Okay, so for the most part, the current state of affairs in forecasting is you look at a lot of historical data, and you develop correlations, you know, time of the month, day of the month, day of the week, you know, whether it's a holidays, Christmas, et cetera. The sort of what I would say is a sort of a spatial correlations. You basically say, okay, if it's this particular day, we see what you have a trend for the year, a trend for the week. We basically say, here's what your demand is going to be, and you price accordingly. The one downside with that is that if you have an anomaly, which the, all the world is an anomaly, yep, yep. you can't tell until it becomes pretty self-evident to somebody who's observing. And so what we have done, we blend that historical data analysis and correlation analysis with a temporal one where we actually look under specific bookings for that specific day. And we can actually estimate really quickly whether or not what the demand rate is going to be for that day and how it's going to change as a function of time. And so we can blend the historical with the real time or near real time and maybe come up with a better estimate. Got it. And so on the pricing side, what we also do is traditionally people basically price if I want to book something for five days, they say, okay, here's a demand for Monday. And they actually look at Mondays in separate from Tuesday, separate from Wednesday, and they come up with individual prices. You see that all the yep, time. all the time. But you, see, you get an average price and you have a different price. With yep. the so one of the things is that there are displacement costs associated with things. So if, for example, I want to book five days, I'm potentially blocking out a day where I could have charged somebody else more money for just staying one day. The thing that we're doing in pricing is looking at the displacement, the combinatorial play, if you will, for a specific reservation request and saying, 
if I have single rooms and somebody wants single rooms and I'm full up of single rooms, should I sell them a double? Maybe. Depends on what I expect that demand for that double is going to be. Let me increase the price a bit to compensate for the fact that I may be losing some revenue. So you look at the opportunity cost with all those combinations. So that's what we're doing in price as well. Got it. I'll go into the forecasting side a little bit because this is interesting. I think everybody who's tuned in, no matter what darn industry you're in, you don't know how it works, but you know that prices vary. You know that they have some kind of model that they're figuring this stuff out with. sounds like traditionally, again, this is historical with holidays and other things. And we kind of know what our curve is going to look like for a day. And we price along that. You're mentioning that the main additional data source that you folks are yanking in, and I imagine there's a lot of different potential data sources, but the one that you guys yank in is close to real time sales. So how many people have already booked now that it's 930? How many people have booked now that it's noon? And what have they booked? And what does that imply for sort of the rest of our day? And does that also kind of rattle forward into tomorrow? Yeah, well, it could could be for the entire three months if you want. So the key thing is if you are able, and we are, to estimate what the underlying demand rate is really quickly by making a few observations over the course of a couple of days, what that allows you to do is to say, okay, Here's what my demand is. Here's what my booking curve or my traditional history tells me is supposed to be. It's off. It could be off because of happenstance, and it could be off because demand is low. So one of the things, you can actually create mini experiments to actually figure out what the price elasticity is and what the true demand is. That's a kind of trick because you think about a price. It gives you two things. It gives you revenue, but it also gives you information. Yeah. And it only gives you information if you change the price. Yep. So by being able to estimate demand really quickly and say, oh, it looks like it's on track or it looks like it's lower, it looks like it's high, let me change the price to actually truly understand what the price elasticity is. And then you can always be optimally changing the price as you go along as well. Ah, okay. So and this, of course, applies to the internet context. It feels very challenging for the people at a front desk to change the price in real time, but maybe it changes for them as well. Because it's on the computer. You walk in and the price was just updated. 45 minutes ago, and you're like, hi, I'd like to book an X room. It's like, well, that'll be 177, you know, right. so it'll be right then and there. Okay, so, and, so that And one of the things that we were doing is actually managing the prices in different channels. Hmm, because, the, because the Xpeed is a channel. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Your hotel booking site is a channel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People walking is a channel. Oh, okay. Booking.com is a yeah. channel. So yes, you can actually yes. manage the prices differently because the price elasticity and the underlying demand is changing over time. It's different for different segments of the population. Yeah. You know, this reminds me of my last business was an e-commerce company and what we could charge upfront for product X. And we made a lot of our money in the back end, customer lifetime value and upsells and things like that. But what we could charge on the, on the front end for some of our physical products is different from Facebook leads than it is from leads that we buy from an email newsletter than it is for our own email list. And so we're talking about the similar kind of thing. The Priceline crowd, the kind of Priceline buyer generally maybe has a certain kind of wiggle room that you can function in. The person who walks in the door has a certain amount of wiggle room that you can function in. Right. And maybe there's testing and tweaking that has to happen across different right. channels. And that comes back to that same thing I was talking about when you you know, you know have that combinatorial displacement problem when you have somebody wants to book for five days and you could have a room for another day at a different price. Same thing comes with different channels. Maybe I don't want to sell so much on a particular channel because it's really cheap. And if I can tweak the price on another channel, I could get more money overall. So that whole thing of looking at all the combinations in which you could sell the prices for different times, different durations of stay, 
on different channels. That's the key to getting the most of the pricing. So this is very helpful and I appreciate it. I'm going to aim to encapsulate the way that I'm currently digesting this. I like to try to distill things down a little bit and then obviously let, let our experts let me know if I'm right or wrong. Yeah. But I, I'm imagining that I'm a guest listening and I'm, yeah. I'm thinking, okay, I'm a hotel. I'm looking at a whole bunch of volume coming in. Mm-hmm. And today we're getting maybe more people coming in through the front desk than usual, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more people coming in through Priceline than we normally get. Mm-hmm. And after testing the prices, we see that maybe people are paying just about what they're normally paying. Maybe for the rest of the day, what might I do different, I suppose, to factor in for my guesses about bookings for today or tomorrow? I imagine maybe some of those data points would let me know, hey, you have an opportunity to fill up when maybe you thought you couldn't, or maybe you have an opportunity to to up the price when you thought you couldn't. And is the system that you folks are working on coaxing those suggestions to people or presenting the data to people? Or what's the experience, I guess, of someone behind the behind the scenes looking at the dashboard here. Oh, you're saying somebody who's working at a hotel. Yeah. What they would see is, they would see, here's what the sales have been for like the last day or two days. Here is our estimate. Here's a confidence we have in our estimate. Okay. And based on that, and the history of how that sales have been coming in for that specifically, here's what our suggested price is. And here, we also tell you, here's our estimate of how much extra revenue you're going to get. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's good to remind people while they're using your service. Exactly. Here's what you're saving, right? Uh, Exactly. And of course, it sounds like it's hypothetically possible to do that for different channels. So for people walking in the front door, you know, here's kind of what might make sense to price today. You normally would be around this price, but, you know, we have less people coming in. It's probably going to make sense for bookings to kind of price us at X, which is a little bit different than usual. Here's how much better we think that'll do for you. For Priceline, we recommend Y. Yeah. And again, that's based on, in some sense, you know, that historical data that's through traditional stuff. In another sense, what's been happening in the last 12 hours. Okay. So what this also harkens to for me is there was a fellow who now works at Unity, which is a 3D modeling sort of company, who used to work at Amazon by the name of Danny Launch, who was talking about how at Amazon, their ability to predict what people would buy for, I mean, I'm just using a random example, as a related purchase or an upsell to Yellow Rainboots in Michigan, some of the most relevant data for what they would buy in that upsell is like the information from like the last day. It's not necessarily what were the related sales in the last eight years on Amazon. It's like, well, this year, mothers happen to also be buying school supplies at the same time as rain boots. And we need to start presenting that stuff more right. because it's happening now. Right. And it sounds like similarly in pricing, cool, we know our historics, we can start there. But, you know, exactly. we're seeing real-time trends. Let's calibrate to that. Exactly. Let's hyper-refine. Exactly right. Uh, that, that's right. What I would say is that it's a warm start. Yeah. So you warm start with historical data. Yep, yep, yep. And you say, you know, the third Wednesday in October, here's what the traditional <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. thing is. Yep. And then you basically say, as you see the bookings coming in for that day, you say, well, based on this, we can see this trend that demand is higher, right, than it normally is. And we can actually start tweaking the price. Yeah. And we actually did a study with a company, which I can't name, which is not a hotel, where we actually helped them figure out what the optimal price for their product was. So for over the course of two months, we actually changed the price systematically. And we actually were able to figure out what the optimum price for their packages were that they were selling. And clearly, again, you know, as you're alluding to now, yeah. sort of this concept applies outside of the hotel world. Oh, yes. But of course, it's where you're yeah. beginning and it's useful to know that. So, okay, so that's helpful. And I think kind of conceptually that should be able to, to click for the audience. Right. I'm very curious as to moving forward sort mm-hmm. of what some of this looks like. 
you know, outside of the hotel domain, what are some of the other areas? You know, we have airlines, we have hotels, which I think... Very similar. Yeah, yeah. People look at Priceline and they know something like what you're talking yep. about is happening, right? right? When I think about it, it's mind-boggling how many companies there are that are just landing pages to route you to another site that's just a landing page to route you to Delta's website. Yep. And they're just getting some affiliate cut on an affiliate cut and making tens or hundreds of millions of dollars doing that. Like the ecosystem of those websites is gargantuan and surprising. But anyway, with that being said, what are other worlds where this is so important in pricing? Well, the one that actually is probably most familiar to folks, and you probably say I didn't think about it, is even supermarkets. Really? Perishable goods. Wow. So okay. you know, supermarkets around this country, around the globe, basically throw away or have to dispose of by some way things that perish every day. Yeah, and lots of it. Exactly. And that's a real shame. It is. And what happens is usually they're sitting on the shelf, you don't have any way of tracking the age of the products you have, and then what happens is you get to the day and they look at the night before or two nights before and they're like, oh crap, this thing is expiring. So they put a huge sale on it, Mm. trying to get people to buy buy this before the expiration date because you're going to be using it today or tomorrow. So the key thing is that if you know what's happening, especially like products like milk or stuff where the SKU number is attached to the data is going to expire, you can actually see the trend in sales a week or a week and a half before. You can actually start lowering the price gradually to move it off your shelf huh. rather than waiting to the last minute and then having to basically almost give it away. Yeah. So there's a huge market there. Think about people who do discount coupons and market surveys for companies like automobile companies and you know large goods this durable goods, they tend to have a pricing scheme, which is a national scheme locally. Willingness to pay and the people's ability to pay are basically, you know, varied. And you, you usually leave it to the local automobile distributor, for example, to figure out what the right pricing is in that area. But you can bring some machine learning and some AI to play here and actually start thinking about how do you structure a program of pricing to figure out the underlying demand and optimally price your discount offers. So is it really $3,000 that's going to get people out to go and buy the Chevy truck? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or is it should be 4000 right? This is interesting. So groceries, I think, I've got some great questions that I think will be really insightful. You mentioned this discount coupon yeah. thing. Is this something that Ford would do as like a rollout or what is this kind of? It would be a continuous thing. Right. So the idea would be you'd literally basically be all the time thinking about, remember, price gives you two things, revenue and information. We always think about price as a way to get revenue, but you always have to be continually doing that trade-off. So, you know, reinforcement learning, yeah. right? You know, it's exploitation versus exploration. Classic problem. And so that yeah, is, that, that's basically the problem yeah, that we're to doing. to think about that in yeah. price. Oh, yeah. man. The flash in my mind, as you said that, JP, is like a future world where everything that you're buying is like flickering between a million options so that everybody is getting real-time senses of what everyone's willing to pay at all times for all things. Where that hyper-optimization at the bottom of the stock market where it's just nanosecond computers, you know, battering back and forth what they're willing to buy and sell things for, that that that's happening for the milk you're buying, for the gas you're pumping, for that everything's altering in real time. It's almost like a dystopian future, but it's pretty interesting stuff. But yes, so good, good point to bring up again. You get... You get price, you get information. If you do only testing and it's almost like for fun, then you might miss your darn revenue targets. You might not be able to make payroll. But if you do no price testing, then 
you're kind of locking yourself into a corner when you should really be able to know when you can move your margins up and exactly. when you need to adjust. Right. And, and so we made that decision on a statistical basis. And that's the key thing, which is the algorithm that we have and the technique we have. We're able to estimate for a given price what the demand is really quickly. And if you can do that quickly, then you can actually say, here's how much revenue I'm going to get. And then you can make a quick change based on that. And if you made a mistake, slight mistake, you'll learn quickly enough to yeah, correct yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So speed is things. It's like a feedback control. If you have a fast sensor and a fast actuator, you can pretty much drive the error to zero in any system. Huh, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm only imagining, you know, more big websites doing what Priceline does, more other sectors using technologies like what you guys are developing and yeah. probably other folks developing to do this and where the, the world is like micro-adjusting to the audience and to the locale at all times. Groceries. We'll yeah. just go with this example because yeah. you brought it up and I thought that this was really challenging for a couple of reasons. When I think about hotels, I think about where most of us think about AI, which is in the digital world, mm -hmm. mostly because the people who make most of the margin in our economy is maybe five companies. Mm -hmm. You know, your Netflixes, your Googles, your uh, your Amazons, your although Amazon tried to limit their profit, but certainly their revenue is huge. That these are digital universes where everything's trackable and changeable in real time. When in eight milliseconds, Amazon can make this book cost four cents less. They just know that that's going to work. Clearly, Amazon's doing kind of a bit of what we're talking about. They have the scale. It's a digitally orchestrated universe where everything is trackable and testable and everything is alterable in real time. Groceries. You know, I go to places where, you know, they're still sliding those little pricer things in there, right? And, and, they're, and that's going away. Talk to me about how that's going away because that seems like ugh, such a troublesome. So actually, it turns out that there are companies out there who have been developing over the last five to 10 years digital pricing, mm. so labels. And there's actually, I can't remember which, the supermarkets now will propose in the next two years, and not in the U.S., but in, in Europe, doing away with tax, pure digital pricing. Yeah. I'm just imagining myself walking to a grocery store. I've got a bunch of Frosted Flakes sitting on a, on a shelf. In front of Frosted Flakes would be a digital display. Exactly. Okay, as opposed to a physical one. Because, yeah, the optimization, when you have to have a guy working seven bucks an hour, go out there and put a new sticker on it, it's not going to work. Yeah, but once you have the digital labels. Then you can. Yes. All right, let me know if I'm thinking where you're yeah. thinking. You say, all right, well, it's Wednesday, it's noon. How much have we moved from the cereal aisle altogether? And how much have we moved from, you know, this section of frosted mini wheats or whatever, whatever our popular cereal in our town is? And we might be able to say, huh, you know, we're not getting as much of that done. It might make sense for us to sort of, you know, maybe drop the price a little bit right. based on what we know, we understand what might work for our curve or lift the price or, or whatever might, the case might be. That seems hard though, because now a grocery store, we don't just have hotel rooms. We have, you know, 200 cereals, never mind everything else. Yeah, computational power is not that big. Okay, right? got it, got I it. Mean, if you think about it, every product is just a unique thing, right? So Frosted Flakes is like a room of a certain type. Yeah. Right? And you have a certain number of those rooms that you want to sell. Yeah. Right? It's a little bit of a different dynamic. Right. You can't fill two rooms. We can think about it the same but way. But you can't send the same box to, no, you can't, to yeah. the same person right. either, yep. right? Yep. So it's one um, unit per person. Yep. I mean, you can sell more in a given day, hypothetically, but maybe you only have so many in the back room. So it's similar right. problems. By the way, so the other thing that we mentioned, groceries, we mentioned, sorry, discount. The other thing is supply chain. Hmm. Knowing when to reorder. Yeah, well, th that's part of the forecasting, right? Yes, exactly. That's part of the thing where you can actually, you know, working with the supermarkets, 
separate from price. Even if you don't change the price, you can actually start estimating better when you're going to run out of certain things, the durable goods, and actually it's managing supply chain that you don't have to have such a big overhead in terms of warehousing. That's huge. And yes. cle- clearly that would matter in a bunch of spaces. Nobody wants to have stuff sitting in the back going bad, right. and nobody wants to run out of things that people need. Right. And so the micro refinements there matter a lot. Right. In closing, just yeah. being mindful of time, you know, you mentioned groceries, you mentioned vehicles. Like travel, they are big consumer segments. You know, clearly it would make sense. If you're a business, you're going out into the market, you can't target something, a, a niche that's too small. So right. you're talking about those. When you look ahead, JP, at just online or offline buying of consumer purchasing in again, five or 10 years in the future, what are the areas other than Priceline.friggin.com with hotels and airlines where you would imagine that it would be quite common to see these sorts of models toggling things? Do you really see grocery as one of those ones where it's kind of inevitable in the next five or 10, or do you see other domains? What space is it, me as a consumer, in the next five years, should I expect to see that toggling happening around me? Well, movies. Movies. Right. Concerts. Those are two things, again, perishable goods. Yeah. And, but a movie is not quite perishable because you can do to the next movie. But most times you want to do something tonight. You got to fill the room right. up. You got to fill the room up. Restaurants, for example, you can actually. What? Not in the pricing, but in forecasting. Yeah. So, okay, for example, okay. how many restaurants have you been to and you walk around and you're like, there's a table for four or a table for six and there are two people sitting there? That decision mm-hmm. about when to put a couple on that a table for a table or yeah. six. That has to do with a huge amount of forecasting, which Maitre D has to do in their head. Yeah. Right? And they're not that good at that stuff. That's right. Exactly yeah. right. And yeah. sometimes, you know, they say, oh, well, let's put them there. And then a party for four comes. And you're like, I can't put the party for four at a table for two. If I held off on that two for another yeah. 10 minutes, I potentially could have freed up another table. Yeah. So how long should I hold that table for two reservation? How long should I hold that table for four, et cetera? Should I take a party for eight? Is it going to mess up my whole flow? Yeah, I mean, yeah. all of those things, those are great things for the forecasting part. So there's a forecasting part and the price optimization part, and there are opportunities for both. And, and just to close out, to cap this, because I, I like where you're going, and I think this notion of perishable goods should click for the audience in terms of where they'd imagine to see this. Would we likely see this more so with companies that do a high enough volume? I imagine if I run a restaurant in where I'm from, a town called Wakefield, Rhode Island, mm-hmm. you know, in, know in the winter... No way. Jesus. Okay, we'll have to talk about that after the episode. Nobody knows where Wakefield is. Anyway, so that's where I'm from, born and raised. In the wintertime, nobody's there because there's nothing to do and the rich people go home when it's not the summertime. You know, I run a restaurant. It's going to be tough to get enough data to train a model. But if I run 18 Wendy's franchises or if I have, I don't know, whatever it is, it seems to me that it's more likely that the first people to get this stuff to click would be places that have a volume of data to train. No, no, no. Having volume of data is always good. However... The model that we developed came from a thought experiment, which is how much data do you need? You don't want to be perfect. You just need to have a statistical model for how much the demand is going to be. And then knowing something is important. And it turns out that you don't need as much data as you think. Well, that, that a lot of people are trying to get there. So exactly. it's, it's great if you and, guys can And, and so right that's now. the key. Because, you know, most of the people think of machine learning, you got to train it with lots and lots volumes, and lots of data. Volumes, volumes. Exactly. Yeah. Our thing is, once we start training and we know something or we have bounded the range of values for underlying demand, then we can make some decisions. Cool. Okay. Right. Which is the key thing. We don't have to know the exact value. Yeah. We just need to know it's within a certain range. 
that's good enough to start making decisions. And Got that's it. the key thing. And I would imagine at a, a chain of 18 restaurants, they're more likely to have an IT guy that would be able to understand it or plug in this stuff than a small town where it's like one dude that went to high school and then a couple kids that do the serving. So they're still probably a little bit less likely to adopt. But what you're getting at is the goal would be to build a technology where they still could. Yes. Where even with a certain you know low level of data, we could still make way better decisions than we would otherwise. Right, so exactly. cool. interesting to understand. JP, thanks so much for sharing your insights. Right, you're welcome. Appreciate it. Yeah. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, most of our podcast listeners get uh, the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. Uh, I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.